Death and dying, not exactly uplifting dinner conversation, or is it? What if we looked at how we could talk about it in an open, loving way? Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm Denise Kowalczyk. Elizabeth Fournier is doing just that. She's an eco-mortician practicing her unique care of helping people be in one of the most difficult of life's passages and helping some of them with holding more eco-sensitive funerals with home burials. She's just released her third book, The Green Reaper, Memoirs of an Eco-Mortician, and recently we met at Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon. That's Elizabeth's funeral home that was built on her philosophy of a foundation of care, kindness, and respect. We spoke about bits of her life story that led to her living a life of purpose. It's just interesting to be in a space with a dead person. I agree. Not something you do every day. It's not shopping at Fred Meyer. Exactly. And it's really fascinating. And what I loved about your book, The Green Reaper, Memoirs of an Eco-Mortician, is that you put some light on some of the the mystery, the stuff we don't talk about it, um, you know, put some light in the corners, right? Or behind the curtain, you gave us a peek that I'm going to use this word normalize it a little bit for me because in a sense, you were sharing your story about your career, whether it was someone who was becoming an accountant, right? Or an actor or whatever that is but it was interesting it just brought it into the forefront of as a regular kind of thing was that kind of an intention with writing your memoir yeah it is i'm just a regular person with a regular job and when it comes to being a writer i'm just a girl with a keyboard so really if anybody has anything they've done in their lives it's not that hard to translate it to print and this is your third book third third book Mm -hmm. and uh i read um what was it um oh gosh uh, all men are not cremated equal. Oh, no, they are cremated Oh, equal. all men are cremated equal. That's right. And that was a fun book about Thank your you. quest to find Mr. Wright. Mm-hmm. And so there was a little bit of your life experiences, of course, in there. And I saw some crossover and such. So it's kind of fun to see your life through this lens of what, uh, what um, prompted you to pursue this career. And I also noticed... You are a determined woman, and you were this laser focus is what I interpreted as you were exploring and pursuing a career, life calling as a mortician. That laser focus, that determination, is that prevalent in all areas of your life, and how so? You know, I appreciate you noticing that. At about age 13... It was very apparent to me that being a mortician was really going to be my bag and was really going to be what I was meant to do on the planet Earth. And pursuing that and moving forward and, you know, when it comes to college choices, talking about mortuary school, you have to imagine how much support didn't really come behind that, as well as the fact I'm a girl. It's really a man's world when it comes to the mortuary business. So the determination had to be there, and it was there even more so than I even meant for it to be just because there were so many doors shut Mm -hmm. in my face and Mm -hmm. I really had to find those little windows to crawl out of. It's everywhere, isn't it? 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think with most things, if you have a goal, I think what I tell people is keep your eye on the prize because the minutiae and the day-by-day stuff is just such a slog and such a drag. So I think we do all have that in our lives. And what I was really um, loving and I found myself actually cheering you on in the book was like you would often act as if. There are many things, whether it was your ballroom dancing, um, which we'll come to in a second, or your career as a mortician, or whatever the case was, whatever challenge came up, whatever opportunity came up, you just acted as if. Where did you get that grit? Because that's what that is. I like that word, grit. That's fun. Gosh. Um, What I think about is I have an aunt, my uh, great aunt, uh, she's a godmother of mine who passed away. She's in her 90s. And she always said, if you aren't happy, it's your own fault. And that's pretty powerful. And she also said, if you want to feel like you're happy, then damn it, just act like you're happy and your body follows along. Sort of in ballroom dancing where your nose goes, your toes goes. So if your head goes a certain way, your feet sort of follow and everything goes in the right position. I think it's just a matter of deciding this is the direction and this is where I'm going and staying in your own lane. She was ahead of her time. I mean, they're writing books about this now, you know, grit (laughs) or acting as if. So yeah. Okay. You're a gritty broad. So you talk about a lot of folks um, in this book um, who made an impact, who who helped you through this process of trying um, to find out, to discover um, how you can make this happen and um, pursue this career. And I want to talk a little bit about Andy in California, mm-hmm. a young fella. Mm-hmm. You lived in a communal housing, is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? It was a blue mansion, but okay. we'll, we'll say it was a community. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Andy, you had a very mm-hmm. lovely relationship with that young man. Um, what was about that relationship that was so heartfelt? Well, I have been a single woman for many, many, many years of my life. I've had a boyfriend show up and waste about six months of my life, and I moved on to somebody else, and I was always that adult child in my family home. And this young man was 12 and didn't have a mother, so that resonated deeply with me since mine passed away when I was eight. He was living with his uncle in this, I guess, room share community type thing. We were really just a bunch of single people living in this very large house in California, and I could see a lot of myself in him. He wanted to walk through the cemetery, and he wanted to talk about the headstones and ask mm-hmm. about different things that happened in the death world. And he was a, a young kid, so he found me motherly. He found me comforting. He also found me interesting. It's not every day I come across a friend, somebody who actually is interested in what I do, and they ask a bunch of questions, and they actually stay with me through the conversation and listen to things I had to say. So it was neat to nurture a small little person, Mm -hmm. and we had a really neat friendship, and I found that in a 12-year-old boy. Interesting. Do you keep in touch with him? I wanted to. When I moved back to Portland, so many funny things would happen. I'd think, oh, I gotta call Andy. And I would call him up and tell him, and he would never answer the phone. Because, you know, when you're 12 and 13, I'm the old lady now who's moved to Portland, Oregon. I think he's got his own friends. I mean, maybe he even found a new mother figure in that house because there were so many women, but I'm not sure. But I think he's probably doing great things wherever he is, and hopefully he'll recognize himself in my book and shoot me an email. Is that his real name? Did you use real names? Not necessarily. Okay, okay. No, okay. I don't ever. I 
everything I have in the book is very positive, yet still, even though I ask permission of people, mm -hmm. I want to be respectful, and mm -hmm. a few names are real, okay. like mine. Mine was real. But a few and I recognized a couple, but we, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you talk, oh, I want to circle back. There was a, other than your husband, there was another prevalent person, a man in your mm -hmm. life, and mm -hmm. Dante is his name. Mm -hmm. I didn't like him. I'm just going to say that yeah. I grew to like him less and less as you would tell more stories about but him. But why did I like him so much? Well, I'm, I'm not gonna, we're not going to psychoanalyze that, but I am very curious. What, because you did spend a lot of time mm -hmm. talking about that relationship. Mm -hmm. What did that relationship teach you about being in the world? Well, I fell in love with his mother. I think that's something that you do when you're a little girl whose mother dies and you don't have a grandparent. You tend to find a boy who has a family that loves you and needs you. And this is a man with Mexican-American heritage, huge amounts of cousins and uh, aunties and uncles, and they all liked me and we would spend mm -hmm. time together. And they found me interesting, as well as his mother didn't have a daughter. So that was the big hook. So breaking up with this person, no matter what his personality was, it was also breaking up with his mother. And boy, I really didn't want to have to do that. But unfortunately, well, I guess you have to put on your big girl trousers and do the right thing. Yeah. Did you ever see them ever again? I'm in touch with family members. Okay. Matter of fact, I'm in touch with a lot of cousins over Facebook. And it's they're wonderful, lovely, lovely, lovely people. I would take his grandmother to Mass, and she's still doing fantastic. And it's just neat to see his family unfold. Yeah. And we're still all very friendly. Mm -hmm. This man, no. And he, is, he hasn't really changed much since we dated. So that's always a fascinating thing when you're a woman. Yeah. And that is another interview for another time. <laughs> right? So um, let's get back to the funeral stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I loved your sense of humor. Um, your ready, uh, matter of fact, writing. It was. Um, I, I'm sure part of this is because I know you personally. You're a friend of mine, but I felt as I was reading the book that I was right there with you. Like mm. like a fly on the wall. Though flies are not attractive, but <laughs> maybe you're. Um, what is it? Imaginary friend or something like that. But I, nice. um, I could, I was part of the story. I could follow the story. I was, and I felt very connected to that. And and your shenanigans, because you were, you kind of did some shenanigans there, right? Mm -hmm. It was never a dull moment mm -hmm. in Elizabeth's life, right? Uh, but as you were going through this journey of, well, first let's start here. When was that moment where you're like, I want to be a mortician? This is something that I want to do. What was that moment? It was a really, really young age, and what had happened was my mother had passed away. My father's parents lived with us. They had passed away. Of course, they all had the same last name, so being a little child at a Catholic grade school in the 70s in the suburbs of Portland, that name comes up all the time because there's prayers, and there's the priest coming to the house, and all of a sudden there's a funeral mass, and there's a burial, and my family spent so much time as caskets as, child, as a child, and of course, going to a little private school, everybody has a married mom and dad. And I was that weird, funky kid. So, of course, it started out with everybody knowing I was different and strange, had this experience. If someone's grandmother died or someone's pet died, they'd come sit by me and talk to me. And as I got older, that would happen. But I found that I found real comfort in cemeteries and funeral homes because my father married right away. We never got, me and my brother, never got the counseling we needed. We never got to discuss or talk or get our feelings out there. So we had to self-medicate, so to speak. 
how my brother did that is he became this excellent scholar and amazing, brilliant student and kind of a loner. And how I did it was by playing funeral and going to funerals of people I didn't know and walking through cemeteries and wearing black and putting on plays and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I had a little graveyard on my dresser as a child. And I wasn't a macabre kid. I had blonde hair and longed to be a solid gold dancer and probably had the characteristics of any American 70s kid in the suburbs. But there was that deep need inside myself, yet it was super comforting. Mm. Yeah, I liked playing with my imaginary friends much better than my real friends. So that's interesting. So there's this comfort, this attachment to this, yet it was isolating, in a sense. Yeah, I was a lonely girl. Yeah. So that's how you filled your space, filled your heart, filled your life, Mm -hmm. by creating this world to try to understand. Because a big part of it... Were you trying to figure out what happened to your mom? Sure. Figure out my place in the world. Mm -hmm. Also, this whole chapter had been opened up to me that wouldn't have before. So I started reading about death customs in the National Geographic magazines. Or if there was a scene on television of a death or a funeral, I would take pay close attention and it was a world that I wouldn't have known about otherwise so I realized huh I guess I'm I've got one foot in that world now and it was just something that stuck with me and I never questioned that as being strange I know that really worried my father for a while because rather than talking about Leif Garrett and going through Tiger Beat magazine I was happy you know playing funeral home with imaginary Eric Estrada and what's the big deal anyway it's none of your beeswax right (laughs) I have this just had this vision of you playing in your bedroom with dolls, with your you made caskets, I guess, you know, and right. And I would line know. them up, a lot of them, because you know why? The longer the procession, the more impressive for the other dolls. Did you bring your friends? Hey, let's come play. Come to my house and play funeral. Of course, it was totally normal. And what did the the, the parents think of that? Did they? <sighs> That's interesting. I don't know if parents ever knew. I think the kids in general, some felt bad for me. I think I had a lot of nice little Catholic friends as a kid, so they just kind of accepted me how I was because I was in their class with them um yeah and now if my daughter was doing that I have a daughter who's 10 years old and I don't know it's a different world Mm. it's a very cruel world nowadays and I'm not sure if they'd be so accepting if that was her behavior I think you make a really good point there I think it is a definitely a different world and what one might excuse me perceive as quirky unusual (laughs) charming they worry about they assume I'm going to become a school shooter or assume those things where before I was just a little girl who was sad and Mr. Mom yep exactly and that's really kind of what it was yeah I mean I still did my solid gold dance moves in the garage and opened it up for anybody who wanted to see I put on performances all the time I did parades down my street and you know nothing was stopping me are you a shy girl (laughs) well that's an interesting question I am a introvert yeah but i'm confident and like to perform it that is so fat that is a an, is that an oxymoron i, I don't know about mm. that but it's, it seems contrary in a sense because mm-hmm. you have pursued um acting mm. modeling dancing i guess that is kind of messed up huh well no that was your <laughs> word not mine and i wasn't even going there i i find it fascinating because again it is part of what's mm-hmm. so fascinating about you is mm. that you're not a slam dunk, hmm. which is a good thing, okay? Invite me to the party, and I want to be invited, but I probably won't come. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So it's just <laughs> really interesting because, you know, we live in a culture that we look at someone and we make 
assumptions. We think we know because of the way they look, the way they dress, the way they speak, that they must fit into this category. But Elizabeth Fournier is not that person at all. And that's a really, I offer that as a very big compliment to you. I take that as a huge compliment, as well as the fact that you thought that you were there when I was telling the story, because I think the biggest compliment you can give an author is looking at the cover of the book and thinking about them and wondering what they're doing, mm-hmm. and you know, you kind of get sucked into their world a little bit. So that's really, really appreciated yeah. hearing that. And did you have a dream to be a writer? When did you have this moment of like, okay, I, I, I need to get this on paper. I need to share this. Stuff. Well, wackily enough, I wanted to go to mortuary school for college, but my father said, you know, that's you're 18 years old. What do you know? You know, you're going to change your mind. You're never going to have a date. This is ridiculous. But also, I went to Linfield College and have a degree in mass communications, which is basically journalism and broadcasting and writing. So go figure. So I was moving in that direction because I like to write and express. And I think a lot of it is escapism. It's a creative world. Mm -hmm. That's why people watch films. That's why we get sucked into Netflix and binge-watching. We want to escape whatever it is. I don't know, standing in line at the post office or paying Mm -hmm. bills or whatever life is. So in the book, you also talk about ballroom dancing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Tell me about that. Was it, I'm trying to remember, was it because there was this opportunity that presented itself or you were at the right place at the wrong time or right time? I mean, how did that become a big part of your life? Well, I find that life is amazing, right? It's just there's so much more out there to the picture than we can even put the numbers and the paint together to make it happen. So I've mentioned solical dancing now for the third time in this 10-minute piece. So obviously that was a very big part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. So I always thought of myself on center stage with my bedangles and my, my sequins doing my thing. So I learned to dance. I took dance lessons, taught myself to dance, and I love to dance. And that's something I would do, especially to my Captain and Tennille records. So one day when I was trying to get an apprenticeship in the Portland area, I just graduated from college. I lived in a cemetery. I was a night keeper. I did all the legwork. And now I had some funeral home experience under my belt. I had a college degree. And let's get going. I wanted the doors to just open up wide for me to come in with my black suit. And it wasn't happening. So I thought, well, I've got to work. So there was an ad in the Portland, Oregonian back when there was the jobs wanted, and it was Arthur Murray, ballroom dancer, no experience necessary, we'll train you. And I thought, oh, girl, I got this. So I showed up at Beaverton Hillsdale Highway, and I walked in, and they did a little training of box steps and some fox trotting, and they said, you're hired. And I knew I had rhythm and tempo and lead and follow solid and pizzazz. Gold. I was solid gold, baby. So, you know, and it was, that's what happened. So that was just an opportunity that presented itself, but I did it for two years. And the fun thing about that is my dance partner was a Reed College graduate who wanted to be a philosopher. And he said, there's no philosophy jobs out there. And I kept saying, well, there's no mortician jobs out there. So we just waltzed our cares away for two years. Oh, my gosh. Let's go talk a little bit about Sophia. Can I say her mm-hmm. name? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, her, your daughter. And you shared in your book, The Green Reaper, that you didn't hide anything from her. I mean, she was, I mean, it was part of it, right? It was part of her life as a young child and still continues to be. And um, I want to talk about Mrs. Butler. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that was her special ghost pal. Yeah. Right. Who was Mrs. Butler? 
My husband and I, as well as Sophia, live in a funky old log cabin up in the hills, pretty close to the funeral home. And it was a home where Mr. and Mrs. Butler lived. They passed away, and their ghost still lingered and stayed. So we bought it just because it was one of these fixer-upper, driveway doesn't connect to the house, um, gold five-gallon toilet bowls from the 70s. There was, you know, flying moths, all types of things that aren't looking good for home buying, and we came in and snapped it right up. And Mrs. Butler stayed on. And Sophia could talk with her and interact with her. And, uh, um, you know, being somebody who was raising their child in a funeral home, I never was too concerned about that. Sophia actually came to the funeral home from the first day she was born all the way until about two years old and would be sort of the comfort dog, if you will, for people, (laughs) the comfort puppy. She'd be in people's arms and be here. And actually, Sophia is named after St. Sophia, which is the Catholic patron saint, the Catholic patron saint of um, widows and widowers. Was that intentional? Absolutely. My life is intentional, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's the Catholicism from childhood, uh-huh. and there's the death and dying tie-in, and I wanted this child to be... Mm. someone with a purpose to have a healing gift and to be there and she did stay in people's arms and it's amazing when somebody comes in broken up and they can hold a baby how their disposition and their thoughts of the world sort of change and I'm not sure if she was able to channel any of that grief for them or just allow them to pass through yeah hold a baby whatever the heck it was but hopefully it was something a little bit more divine so have you had very direct conversations with her about what mommy does? Yeah, she knows what I do. She's been to uh, people's homes when they've passed away. She's held people's hands when I were was doing their hair, their nail polish. She'd come into the funeral home, just like you did today. You came into the funeral home. Mm-hmm. Normally I let her know there's a loved one in the parlor. Mm-hmm. And she'll want to go see them and talk with them. And a lot of times she'll say a prayer or she'll get on a stool and talk. And now she's 10 years old. So it's, it's not that it's familiar and it's no big deal. It's just that she doesn't need the stool and she might not hold the hand any longer but she'll still look at them and she doesn't necessarily ask how someone has died that's not really her focus it's just more so oh well is his mom okay I mean she'll ask really kind questions which I appreciate so we've been really open and on the other hand wear your seatbelt every day because remember when we went to the medical examiner's office the other day and remember that boy and so it's been a really interesting thing because being a small family funeral home I've been able to bring her a lot of places and it's always been a situation which might be strange for most but it's always been appropriate because um, she's been able to go and be when it would be allowable. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll be in a morgue in a hospital. There's no family there. Um, it's safe. The person, you know, doesn't have a contagious disease who passed away. It's after hours. Things like that. So she's been able to be very hands-on when it wouldn't be offensive to anybody. And she's well aware of the the danger of drugs the danger of bad life decisions, and she's had some pretty heavy reality checks for being mm-hmm. 10 years old. I think my favorite part of the question you asked is, as a very young child, we would always go to the crematory and either drop somebody off for cremation or pick them up, and she loved to dress as a princess, so every time she would wear a different princess outfit, and the cremationist just got such a kick out of that, and I thought, well, how wonderful. If a two-year-old can bring some joy to their day, then, you know. Because I'm assuming that's not a very joyful... <laughs> 
career. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. That is that's really precious. Thank I mean, uh, when she looks back, I'm guessing when she looks back, she she's gonna be so ahead of it. I mean, you because we don't talk about death. No one touches it with a ten foot pole until you have to. I also want to talk a little bit about language. Like when I, I may even said earlier in this conversation, the body was in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's like uh, disconnecting because they are, were a person and you talk, you call them the loved one. Right. Right. So they're here. Yes. They're still present, mm-hmm. not in the living way. Um, but they're always going to be present in some way. I mean, is that, your philosophy is that what is that where does that come from i love that that you may ask that question it comes from the heart they are somebody's loved one so i call them mr or mrs or call them by a first name if they're older than me for some reason i say mr or mrs but if somebody's younger than me i say a first name and even if my husband and i are talking privately amongst ourselves at home funeral home in the van we always say mr and mrs or we never say the body we never say the corpse we never uh single it out to be something so like you say disconnected it's always somebody we never say transporting or picking up. We always say bringing into our care. Because, again, mm-hmm. it's such an honor that somebody calls you to their home or calls you to the hospital to say, my dad died. Can you come get him? I need you to take care of him. So we bring their loved one or they bring Mr. So-and-so into our care. It's a big one. Is that um, prevalent in the funeral business? Well, I would say, because I've been in the funeral industry for 27 years, I would say not really. People say cases, such as the number one question between funeral directors is, how many cases does your shop do? (laughs) And I'm always stunned, and then I always laugh. And I say, well, I'll have to think about that, because... Assigning numbers to everybody is just, I don't know, that's foreign to me in a sense. I guess that's what business people do, but I I guess I look at it like a ministry, I suppose. But what, well, yes, and that's a really good point because I did take from reading your book and and knowing you that this is, it's not about the numbers, it's not about the cases, it's not about the business, it's about your ministry, your word, you know, but I would agree with that, um, to help people go through a, one of probably the most difficult time in their life, right? Yes, yes. Um, in a caring, loving way. And mm-hmm. you're not making millions. I'm guessing you're not going to Tahiti every other month on this. Don't drive a new car and all my clothes are upcycled. There you go. <laughs> so one of the questions I have, and I think I've sort of answered it for myself, is... Is your interest, your pursuit of this, a work of passion or obsession? Hmm, Definitely passion, definitely. I work in a repurposed goat barn in Boring, Oregon. And it's just a matter of being able to do things exactly the way I want to. I had to work in the corporate world. I mean, look at my path. I had to work as a ballroom dancer at Arthur Murray. Thankful I did. Great life lessons. But that wasn't what I was setting out to do. It's what I had to do. Then I had to work in the corporate world, and I remember about 15 years ago walking through a cemetery in Portland where I worked, and I had a huge cry, and I said, okay, God, I said, I 
you, uh, this is not what I set out for. You know that this is not why I'm in this industry to work on my seven-minute sales presentation and to worry about my numbers. I really, if I could ever do this my own way, I would be so thankful. Well, all of a sudden, one day down the road, a phone rang, and here's an old man who had a place out in the middle of nowhere and needed somebody to come in and run it. And when I showed up, Oh my gosh, the place was in just a disrepair. It was a mess. The man couldn't really pay me. And he said, I just need someone to come in and run the place. And that was one of those moments of my vision came to me. And it is a complete diamond in the rough. (laughs) And this is the time to make it happen. And I remember you talking with Michael Mm -hmm. in the book about this. You know, you were... Again, it's that grit. It's that dedication to following what's in your heart. And you were like, this. You clever, knew, clever. you knew it was the right thing. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it just was. It rung true in your heart. And Michael was um, marvelous in supporting you in that. Yeah, as a man who was aghast at my business sense, but yeah. also as someone who loved me, thought, well, I guess yeah. you somehow have a vision. So I was working in this place where the man could hardly pay me. And then after a while, I was using my own credit cards to basically finance my job. And my husband, who was actually my boyfriend at the time, who was, you know, ridiculously decided to marry me, said, what are you doing? You are paying to work full time? This, you're, you're, wait, 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 let's backtrack here. You are, you know, maxing out your credit cards to actually work this job. And I said, I've got a vision. I've got a vision. And I didn't know if vision would lead me into a really bad place, but my vision, my inner guidance said, you're going to be okay. As well as I've been able to do my big, big, big heart's desire of taking care of things in a way which feels real to me, which is having families be able to seek out and take care of environmental practices. That was Elizabeth Fournier, author of The Green Reaper, Memoirs of an Eco-Mortician. You can find her book on Amazon. I'm Denise Kowalczyk. Thanks for listening to Between the Covers.